five minute fellowship break like normal afterwards. Um, so today, um, we are both going to talk about a Jesus moment that means a lot to us. So for mine, we're going to go um, to Luke 13, and I'm just going to read it real quick. Um, in verse 10, on the Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmary. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites, don't each of you on on the Sabbath untie your own ox and donkey from the stall and lead it out to get water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from... From what bound her. And he said this, and all of his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. And so when when we were asked to speak on communion and asked to speak about a Jesus moment, that was really daunting, because there are so many Jesus moments, and it's hard to just pick one. And it's hard to even pick one point out of a passage in the Bible. And so there are so many things I could speak to for this, but for the sake of time, I'll just stick with two. First... The first thing that jumps out at me um, was the fact that the, the Pharisees and every no one was arguing that this woman was healed. No one was arguing that Jesus was healing her. The Pharisees even said, people, stop getting healed today. Come back tomorrow, which I just think is so awesome that even his worst enemies were like, no, that guy's doing good work, but please don't do it today. Um, the second thing that I think speaks to uh, me about Jesus is Jesus is probably healing all day, every day. Um, you know, obviously the gospel is just a short collection of stories based on his three years of ministry. In that time, he healed hundreds more people than are mentioned in the gospel. It was just kind of a way of life for him. And I love that he saw this woman and his heart went out to her. And the stories we see in the Bible where he does stuff on the Sabbath day, it's not that it's not that he goes out of his way to do it on the Sabbath day. It's that that's who he is. And he doesn't let the Sabbath day change him. He doesn't let work change him. He doesn't let vacation change him. He doesn't let good times or bad times change him. He is who he is. And I think that's really powerful for me because this is this is a God who wouldn't let anything stand between us and him. He wouldn't let our our humanness, it's a weird word, but our humanness uh, separate us. He wouldn't let our sins separate us. He wouldn't let the Jewish law separate us from him. He was going to come to us regardless of the obstacles, and that's still the God we serve. That's still the God that I've seen in my own life just chase after me um, over all the hurdles that I've put in the way. And God has just kept coming after me during work, vacation, holiday, whatever, our God is a God who chases us. Um, hi, family. I miss you all. Just saying that. Um, so for me, my Jesus moment, I think that just always has been relatable to me, no matter what stage in my life has just been the Samaritan woman. Um, and it's in John 4, and I think... To summarize most of it, you know, at the beginning when he first 
reaches out to her, she points out the biggest difference. Like, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, you don't associate with me. And yet he still did that. And he talks to her and lets her know um, that he knows a lot of great things about her or a lot of things that she's been doing. Um, and so just to take a brief scripture um, in John four sixteen to 24, um, I think this part just really um, reaches out to me. Um, Jesus told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in the truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Um, So I think this Jesus moment relates to me because um, just like this woman, when I was found, when Jesus found me and I found Jesus, I too was gorging myself in sin. You know, um, back then I also used to worship what I did not know. Um, Growing up, I thought it was okay to sin all day, you know, all sorts of sin. Um, and then I would pray every night asking for forgiveness and then the next day do it all over again, trying not to change just thinking if I pray, God will forgive me and I can just keep on doing what I'm doing. Um, and I think what reaches out to me is the fact that Jesus came to me like that. He didn't expect anything other than me than to be myself and to acknowledge my sin. Um, and what I also think that's relatable to me now, I mean, that's what I keep going back to when Jesus first reached out to me, but even now during quarantine, you know, this woman was ostracized. She didn't have a lot of friends or family saying, you know, this is how to fix it. This is what you can stop doing. Um, but instead Jesus came to her and said, don't rely on others. Don't rely on these things. Rely on me. I am the living water. Um, and I think in quarantine, I've had to realize that I can't rely, even though my friendships here in the church are amazing. I can't rely on those friendships. I can't rely on Ryan. Um, I've had to rely on Jesus because he is the living water. Amen. Let's pray Lord in heaven, God, um, thank you that we can rely on you. Thank you that we can just come to you regardless of what's in our lives, regardless of the sin, the loneliness, the situation of our lives, God. Thank you that we can just come to you. God, and thank you that you will chase after us unendingly, that you don't let anything stand in our way, Father, of getting to you, of you getting to us. Father, thank you for overcoming the biggest obstacle between us, our sin, uh, through the cross, God. Thank you for just chasing us 
that adamantly, Father. Lord, we love you. Help us love you more. In your name we pray. Amen. It's great to be together, and it, uh, I'm tired of this uh, whole pandemic thing. I uh, I miss church in the normal sense, but I really miss church now because i got to speak the uh, screen of boxes, and it's not easy. Um, I, I feel for uh, what Steve has done in, in, uh, in this whole time of pandemic, and uh, I was talking to Larry yesterday, and he was asking me what, what my lesson was going to be on, and he said, I'm really looking forward to hearing you because it's been a while. I started to think it's, it has been a while. I didn't realize that it's been almost 50 weeks since I last uh, had a uh, um, lesson of, of substance um, to the church. And uh, that's like a thousand COVID days. So it's been a long time. <laughs> and uh, so I, um, I spent a lot of time preparing this lesson, probably way more than I've spent in uh, on prior lessons uh, because it's been so long and I'm a little rusty. Um, it's also because... Um, it's a it's a new thing for me because I'm, I'm going to be presenting a lesson that's really a um, um, a rehash of a lesson taught by a, a campus minister in Boise, Idaho, and uh, so bear with me. Um, this could be a, a great lesson, a life changing lesson for you, or it could be a dumpster fire. Um, who knows? <laughs> uh, I'm hoping it's not the latter. And, and if it is the latter, um, I give you permission up front to lie to me and say it was great, it was life changing, uh, it was awesome, um, especially you, Ryan. Um, and Peter, uh, so you, you have my permission uh, up front. And uh, Steve asked me to uh, teach a lesson on faith, and he wanted me to pick one of my favorite uh, faith lessons. And I originally was going to uh, teach a, a lesson on a, on a study that I've been doing on the centurions of the New Testament and the great faith that they had. But as I was reading that story, I realized that um, it needed some background and um the, the, the faith of the centurion that, that addresses uh, Jesus and asks him to heal his servant is a faith that um, of, a, of a man who trusts the story, the story of God. And, and that reminded me of a podcast that I had listened to um, by a guy named Marty Solomon. He's the campus minister from Boise, Idaho that I, that I mentioned. And uh, he's a unique teacher in that uh, he, he grew up Jewish and uh, converted to Christianity and uh his style of teaching, he tries to take from the Eastern mindset of, of teaching. And by that, mean, by that I mean it's uh, the rabbinical, rabbinical, sorry, rabbinical style of teaching in that uh, a rabbi will try and teach you by nudging you towards a conclusion. They won't give you a conclusion and support it by facts. They, they, they uh, kind of give you hints and they nudge you towards a discovery of the truth. And they feel like that's the best way to learn because you're, the student is actually discovering the truth on their own and it becomes their own truth. Um, on, in contrast, the, the Western minister and pastor evangelist will, will try and teach by uh, making an assertion. And then they'll try and support that assertion by giving you all these facts that prove that assertion. And so they're spoon feeding the, the, the student and then they're trying to convince the student that what they're teaching them is correct. And so it's two totally different ways of teaching. And, and uh, of course, Jesus was a rabbi, and so he taught from the Eastern mindset, and he learned from the Eastern mindset. And so I think it's important to to, um, to add that to our repertoire of learning. And so I love this guy. He, he's um, produced a series of, of podcasts, and it's called the Bema Podcast. And I encourage everyone to, to look it up. It's incredible uh, content, and I've learned a ton, ton from it. And uh, one, of the, one of my favorite lessons that he's done is on the on Abram. Uh, Abraham. Abram was, was originally named Abram, and, and when he um, was given the promise promise of God, God renamed him to Abraham. 
And um, um, so I want to look at that. And I'm going to start in, in Hebrews 11. And uh, he starts his lesson by saying, why did, why did God choose Abram? And he said, most Westerners don't, don't really care. They, they say, you know, God, God is sovereign. God is the, the potter. We're the clay. He can choose whoever he wants. And we don't, we, don't, we don't worry about it. But for the rabbi, from the Eastern mindset, they want to know why he chose him because it adds uh, so much to the story. In Hebrews 11, in the Faith Hall of Fame, in verse 1, it says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commanded, commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made, about, made out of what was visible. By, in verse 8, By faith Abraham called, sorry, by faith when Abraham called to go to a place, he would later receive as his, his inheritance. He obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him with him in the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who made the promise. And so from this one man, um, and he was good as dead. I love the line. He was good as dead. Came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and, and as countless as the sand on the seashore. So the question is, why did God choose Abram? And, you know, in, in retrospect, we, we see in Hebrews 11 that he was a great, great man of faith. But when you look at the calling of, of Abraham and, and even before the calling of Abraham, his, uh, his introduction um, in, a, in a genealogy, sorry, that's Otter. He's attending as well. Um, uh, in uh, sorry, in, in um, Genesis 11, there's the genealogy that describes the family of Abraham. And uh, Marty Solomon talks about genealogies in the Old Testament are very exciting to the rabbi. They're very exciting to the Eastern learner because they tell so much about the story of, of, of people. You, you can learn about the character of of, of people because you see their relationships and how they all fit together. And if you know those relationships, you can understand the story better. From the Western, Western perspective, when we get to a genealogy in the Bible, we skip it. It's boring. We don't understand it. It makes no sense to us. And a big reason why it doesn't make sense to us is because we're not reading it in the Hebrew. We don't understand the, the nuances of the scripture and, and of, of the genealogy because we're not looking at it from an Eastern perspective and we don't understand the Hebrew. And so what I want to do is I want to um, go to um, um, Genesis 11 and, and read the genealogy of Abram. And in verse 27, this is the account of Terah's family, uh, uh, family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was, uh, she was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Ishka. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Sarai took his son, Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Haran lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. 
so it's another genealogy and it, it, there's no significance to us because we don't understand the, the lines and we don't understand the um, the patriarchal uh, structure of, of their culture of the eastern culture and uh, Marty Solomon points out that whenever you see a genealogy you typically see it um, as a list of men's names they're rarely in a genealogy are women mentioned and when they are mentioned it's because they're central to the story they play a, a large part in the story so when we look at this genealogy, it's very simple. Uh, Terah had, had three kids. He had uh, uh, three sons, Abram, Nahor, and uh, Haran. And Haran had uh, two, daughter, two daughters, Ishka, Milka, and Lot, and, and the son Lot, sorry. And, um, and then it goes on, and uh, it says that uh, um, in verse 29, Abram and Nahor both married. And the way it reads in the English it's very simple. They, they, they took both took wives, but the way it reads in the Hebrew is totally different. It says um, Abram and uh, Nahor agreed to take wives, and he took wives. So in the Hebrew, it starts out with the pronoun being plural, and the, the two two brothers agree to, to to marry. And then when it says that he took wives, it becomes uh, becomes singular. So it's they and he. Even in, in Hebrew, if we read it that way, it would, wouldn't mean much to us. But to, to, to Rabbi, it means a whole lot. Because when it's written in the Old Testament, in that structure, gra- grammatical structure, it means that two people are in agreement. They come to an agreement, and they agree to act as one. And typically, when that action that, that, is, um, uh, that happens is a benevolent action. And so it says that, in, in the Hebrew, it says that Avraham um, uh, and Nahor agreed to take wives, and then he took wives. So one could assume, well, then it must be Abram taking two wives, the two two daughters of Haran, uh, Ishka and um, Milka. Am I losing anybody? <laughs> so, so they agreed to take wives, but it turns out that um, that one one uh, daughter is given to Nahor. And another daughter is given to, to Abram. But then it goes on. And, and the odd thing here is if, if Ishka is mentioned in the genealogy, she must be important, but she's never mentioned again. So it gets really confusing. And it's all cleared up uh, when you go to the Midrash. And Midrash is a, is a text that was written by rabbis to be used by rabbis. And it's really our modern day commentary on scripture. And so the rabbis would, would write their commentary as they interpret the scriptures and that, that Midrash can never conflict with the, with the um, scripture, but only add to it or explain them. So the Midrash says that um, not only did um, uh, Abram and Nahor take wives, but they took their uh, nieces as wives. So that would mean that um, uh, Abram married Ishka and Nahor married Milka. But that conflicts with the scripture because the scripture says that Abraham married Sarai. So it's all confusing. And then if you go forward to Genesis 20, it's um, uh, Abraham, Abraham is in front of the king of the Philistines. And he says, this is my wife, Sarah, who is not only my wife, but my sister. Which gets more and more confusing. But the Midrash explains the whole thing. And, and if you look at the meaning of the name Sarah in Hebrew, it means princess, my princess. If you look at the meaning of the name Ishka in Chaldean or Aramaic, it means princess. So they explain the fact that Ishka and Sarah are both the same woman. 
and that when when uh, Abram married Ishka, he was marrying Sarai. And the whole significance of all, of all that is this a patriarchal patriarchal family, and it was a benevolent act because both Ishka and Milka were unmarried, and they had no chance of being married because their father had died. In the patriarchal community, the only way they could get married is if their father found a husband for them and 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 uh, married them off and entered a covenant with the, the his sons-in-law. So this is all significant and becomes more and more significant because it brings out the, the character of Abraham. Not only does was he trusting God's story, but he was willing to give up his own names, namesake, give up his own um, uh, calling and his own legacy in order to make sure that his niece was taken care of. And he entered that agreement with uh, with his brother Nahor to make sure that the two nieces were taken care of. And I think God looked at that and he said, I'm going to choose Abram, not because of his great faith or his trust in the story, but because this finally I find a man other than Noah that worries about other people other than himself. And when you think about that, that, that character trait is so important because that is so much like Jesus. So God's looking down at Abraham and saying, I need to build my, my great nation. I need to rebuild after the destruction of the world. I need to rebuild uh, my legacy and, and, and mankind. And I'm going to choose one man to do that. And I need to find a man that is more concerned about others than he is of himself. He's more concerned about the providence and, and the provision of, of those who cannot take care of themselves than he is of his own legacy or his own name or his own uh, uh, living, really. So God chooses Abram, and he he, uh, he decides that uh, um, he's going to unleash his, his story to Abram. At this point, he only knows uh, uh, that God has called him out of his land. He's left his father at this point, um, which was really not not acceptable at that time. We, we talk about we, we need to get our kids out of the basement in our in our culture, and they need to spread their wings, and they need to emancipate. Um, but in their culture... That was actually an insult if a child wanted to leave the home. If he wanted to leave the patriarchal umbrella, it was an insult to the father. And because the uh, father's kids were there to, to carry on his legacy and to carry on his, his um, 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 vocation, to carry on uh, his whole family line. And, and he was made significant through, through the legacy of, of his kids uh, carrying on that legacy. And so... God calls Abram away and Abram, Abram agrees. And in faith, he says, okay, I'm, I'm going to leave my security of, of my father. And I'm, going to, I'm going to move on. And then in uh, chapter 12 of Genesis, it says, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household, the land I will show you. I will make you in a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people, people on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he was set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. And the other part of this story is the, the fact that, you know, God's giving this promise in, in chapter 12, and you, you know Abram's first thought is, you can't be talking about me because my wife is barren. And he knew that his wife was barren when he married her, when he, when he had that benevolent act of marrying her and, and, and taking care of her. He knew that she was barren. So when God tells him, you're going you're gonna to be a father of great nations, he's saying, how can that be? Yeah, I, I don't understand. But, but Abram trusts the story. He goes along with the story. He does what, he, what he's told by God, and he moves on. <clears throat> and uh, to me, it's, it's, it's amazing just to see um, 
up until this point, we, we've seen a lot of stories in, in Genesis from Genesis 1 to 11. We, we see this uh, creation story with Adam and Eve, and God tells them a story that you're going to live with me in paradise for eternity. You will never die. But I ask one thing, don't eat of that tree, that tree of uh, the knowledge of, of good and evil. That's all you have to do. It's a simple requirement. And immediately it takes them you know, minutes before they blow it. And there's tragedy. And you look at uh, Cain and Abel, and God gives Cain and Abel a story, and he asks them to follow it, and, and uh, Abel does, and, and, and Cain doesn't. And when, when he gets called on it, he, uh, he gets frustrated, and he tries to start, start write his, writing his own story. He doesn't trust God's story. He wants to create his own story, and it ends in tragedy. And then, and then you see the, the people uh, uh, in Noah's time where they, they're disobedient, and, and, and God has to solve for it. And that ends in, in, in tragedy. So he's looking so forward to Abraham and his relationship with Abraham because he wants someone to trust his story, someone to enter rest, and someone to be successful. And he's, he's finally found his guy. And it's funny, uh, through, through all the stories of Abraham's life, um, the story is put before Abraham, and, and he's, he's told he's going to be a father of, of, a, of a great nation. He's going to have many offspring. And he's trusting, he's trying to uh, trust in it. And then he just, he can't trust in it. And the, there's a story of, of uh, um, uh, there's a famine in the land. And Abraham decides to, to feed his family. He's got to take them all down to Egypt. And because, because the Nile floods every year, they don't, they don't endure, have to endure the famine there. And so he decides to take his family down there to, to provide for him. But he, he comes to Sarah and he says, we need, need to make up the story. If, I, if we go down together and they know that we're married, they'll kill me. And they'll take you as, as their wife. So let's tell them that we're brother and sister. And it's at that point that, that he's no longer trusting the story. Abraham doesn't trust the, the story that God's going to take care of him. He's going to provide for him. He'll be his provision. And so he lies about it. And he departs from the story. And by the grace of God, they escape Egypt, more wealthy than, than they arrived. And the, and the story goes on, and, he, and he's, Jacob's trying to trust, trying to trust, but he's, he's not, they're not having kids. And, and, and then, then he realizes, well, God tells him, just, just trust in me. Your family will come from your seed. And so he takes that as well. If it's coming from my seed, then it must not be from Sarah as well. So he takes his, um, his wife's servant uh, to be the mother of his child, and they have, uh, have a child. Hagar has a a child named Ishmael and he just parts and he, he doesn't trust the story anymore. And it's pretty easy to beat up on Abraham and say, wow, he just doesn't get it. Why, why can't he be consistent? Why can't he trust? And, and every time I think about that, I think about my own life and, and raising kids. Those of you who have kids can relate. Those who don't have kids, you'll, you'll relate when you do. Um, but when you're raising your kids and you're, you're giving them instruction and, and you're trying to trying to guide their ways and they just rebel, they don't do what you want them to do. And the record plays over your mind. Why can't you just obey? It's simple. If you just obey, it'd be so much better. It would go well with you. And then the, that, that whole thought goes in your head, starts ringing back. And then you realize that's just like me. God's just saying, why can't you just obey? Why, don't, why can't you just trust the story? If you trust the story, everything will go well. But instead, we try and write our own story. And uh, so it's, it's really easy to beat up on Abraham. But he... I would say that he's he, um, obviously if he's in the faith hall of fame, he's 
way more faithful than we are. And he, he got it. He trusts the story way more than, than uh, we have. And, um, you know, Carol and I were talking about this and, and uh, just kind of reflecting on our past. Uh, we were married in 1990 and um, we decided soon after we were married that we, we didn't want to have kids um, because we want to be prepared for kids. We want to make sure that when, when we had kids, we could afford kids. And it was pretty naive to think because you can never afford kids. Uh, it just doesn't happen. As, no matter how much money you make, you, you can never afford kids. You know, there's uh, there's the diapers, the um, the formula, the food. Then then they uh, get older and they have to, uh, to to go into daycare, and that gets expensive. And they get out of daycare, and then they have to go into braces. And it's just it's a constant cycle. You can never afford them. But but we made that proclamation that we wanted to wait until we we uh, uh, were ready and we, we could afford to have kids. And and uh, we moved to Vermont in '92. We bought our first house in '93, and and we're thinking, okay, we're settled. I, th- I think we're ready. And we so we decided to have kids and. We waited, and we waited, and we realized. Well, we, we weren't just waiting. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't just waiting, <laughs> but we, we we did our part to to, to have kids, and and God didn't didn't um, um, bless us with kids, and we got frustrated. We we started looking to to science and and, and fertility drugs and, and and just trying everything to have kids, and it got to the point we we talked about having um, a, a child in a surrogate, and. Um, that to me was just so weird. I, I couldn't deal with it. And I, you know, I started getting really frustrated after um, probably three and a half years into, into the, the process. And we both finally said enough's enough. You know, if we're going to have kids, we're going to have kids. Let's, let's not, not try and force it any, anymore. Next month, Carolyn was pregnant. Uh, Emma uh, was conceived and, and she was born in 96. And um, we realized at that point we weren't trusting the story. We weren't trusting in God. We were trying to make it happen. Uh, we thought we were ready for, for kids, and so we were going to make it happen. And God said, uh-uh, it's, it's not going to happen yet. And uh, soon uh, soon after, I think it was Emma's first birthday, Carolyn got pregnant again. And I'm thinking, yeah, we, we got this down. We trust God. And uh, it was like it was 12, 12 it was, weeks. It was my birthday weekend. Yeah, so uh, partially into the pregnancy, she miscarried. And um, we lost the child. So when we were thinking here, we, we, we've trusted the story and, and God's blessed us and now he's taking it away. And it, at the time, I, you know, I thought it wasn't that gonna, not, not that big a deal. I can trust God, but it, it left a huge hole and it, it was painful and it's still painful. And so, you know, we went back to trusting God and, and hoping to have another child and didn't have a child. And so we decided to try the fertility route again. Again, we, we didn't trust in God. We, wanted, we were on to write our own story and, and, uh, uh, went on the fertility drugs and nothing happened. Nothing happened. And finally, I said, en- "Enough's enough. We're not going to do this anymore." Um, oh yeah, there was a, an issue with um, uh, Emma. Emma had Fitz's disease um, in daycare, and they they called me to let me know because they knew we were trying to conceive. Turns out, I was actually pregnant when Emma had Fitz's disease. So there was a whole other ball of wax of fear of if this child that I was carrying was going to be something awful was going to happen because of Fitz's disease. So. But again, it was, it was a resolution that, you know, we, we can't make it happen. We have to trust in God. And that's when, when God blessed us. And it's just amazing how, how God works. And um, he's written a story for all of his creation. He wrote the story for Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, uh, Noah, Abraham. He's also written the story for us. And he calls us to trust him and to show the trust that Abraham, Abraham did, that, that as long as we're not so concerned about ourselves and taking care of ourselves, as long as we're not writing our own story, 
to create our own ending that he will bless us. And uh, I love it when you're, when you got your sermon prepared and, and you're sitting and waiting to deliver it and you realize the guy doing welcome stole one of your scriptures. <laughs> that, that used to bother me, but, but uh, I've learned that um, I just threw it on the floor. Um, I've learned that when that happens, it's just proof that the spirit is working and that he's, he's weaving everything together. So thank you, Peter. Uh, what's our story? Our story is in Matthew 11 it says, come to me. All you, all of you, all of who, sorry, let me start over. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon on you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I think of John 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand is not uh, not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees a wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And then finally in Matthew 22 and verse 36, it says, uh, Teacher, which is the greatest command of the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first, first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself as the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So how do we trust the story? I think it's um, in my life, I'm trusting the story when, when there's balance in my life. I grew up with a, um, a large family, uh, the five kids in our family. And uh, uh, my mom left the house when I was 10. And so my father was left to, to raise uh, the remaining really four kids um, on his own. And, and uh, he set a great example in working hard but he was always working. He was always traveling. And I, I admired that. And I thought that was, that's the way you take care of your family. And so in my career, that's what I've done to the point where I neglected my family and I was traveling a ton. And, and there, there came a moment in, in my life where uh, it was, it was time to say enough and uh, no more traveling. I, I, I love providing for my family. I can make more money if I travel. I can make more money if we re relocated, but enough's enough. I need to take care of my family and take care of their emotional needs and their physical needs and not just the financial needs. And so I challenge you guys as, as we go into the week, I want you to think about how are you trusting the story and how are you not trusting the story? It's pretty easy to write our own story in our career. It's pretty easy to write our own story in our relationships, uh, in, in seeking uh, a spouse and, and raising a family. Um, it's pretty easy to write our own story and in trying to get our spouse to do it, do what we want them to do. Um, but I encourage you guys to think about, you know, what is your story? What, what is the good life that God has planned for you and the, the um, easy burden that he's planned? And how do you make it difficult by writing your own story? And uh, I'm going to leave you with those thoughts. And I appreciate you indulging me. And hopefully that wasn't a dumpster fire. <laughs>